Alright students, welcome back to class. We're talking today about Dante's Paradiso from Dante's Venus towards the illuminating sun. You've done this reading and so you know that the sun occupies the cantos 10 through 14 or so and has two major speakers including St. Thomas Aquinas as well as St. Bonaventure. And so let's get through some basic facts about the sun before we get into the major arguments that are put forward and try and do some symbolic thinking regarding the actual shape of the sun and the sorts of people there. So let's lay this stuff out. What sorts of people are within the sphere of the sun? Well, the occupants here, unlike those in Mercury, unlike those in Venus, unlike those in the moon, are teachers or scholars or theologians. They are people who shed light and warmth into the world. In fact, I, I recall, and I have to paraphrase this quote, unfortunately, Thomas Aquinas said, the art of a teacher is to be like the sun. And to be like the sun in two ways, to give light through illumination to the intellect of those around one, but also to give warmth from one's own heart to help those around one grow. Much like the sun allows us both to see and to grow, which is literally true, especially for plants that essentially eat sunlight. They convert it, uh, I think, into what, into chlorophyll? Uh, we can look that up. In any case, here's the theme behind the sun. Or at least, this is my hypothesis about the theme behind the sun. Let's see if this is true. Sharing perspective in order to, great, to achieve a greater one. Let me give you two pieces of evidence for this. Now, the sun is the first sphere of heaven that is beyond the conical shadow of the moon, or excuse me, of the earth, which means it is the first sphere of heaven not obscured or marred by the darkness of some sin, which means it is the first of the second trinity of heaven. It is the first of the slightly more perfect places. And you might say, how can it be slightly more perfect from an already perfect place, which is actually a, uni a unity in its whole heaven, although we perceive it as a diversity? I'd say like this. We can see it clearer. And in fact, you might say, Mr. Schmidt, you have been making the claim along the, uh, this entire time that each time Dante learns the lesson of a sphere, Beatrice becomes more beautiful and he ascends to the next sphere. As if the clearer your thinking gets, the clearer and more beautiful the world becomes around you, which is a very strong claim by Dante and I would say likely true. In this sphere, you first start to notice what the spheres actually look like. You say, what does that mean? I say this. Each one of the next four spheres will take a very specific shape that relates to the theme of the sphere. The sun will be two circles actually outlined very vaguely by a third that we'll only see at the very end after we've learned our lesson. The fifth sphere, Jupiter, or excuse me, the fifth sphere is Mars, will be in the shape of a holy cross, a trinity, a T or not a trinity, a T, as it were. Trinity starts with T. The sixth sphere, Jupiter, will be in the form of an eagle and will be able to actually focus on its eye at some point, as if the eye is the most important part of a king, like suggested by Zazu in The Lion King and Horus in the Egyptian mythology, who was a falcon who restored his father, Osiris, who was a god king like Zeus, to authority, sort of like how Zeus does the same with his father, Kronos to the Golden Isles, or the White Isles. Uh, so it says Ovid and his description of the Titanomachy. And the last sphere will be a golden ladder with the contemplatives in 
Saturn. And then we'll move on to the crystalline heavens and uh, the, sort of, the sort of more ethereal heavens, if that's a way of even talking about it. In any case, the shape of the sun is two interlocking circles surrounded by a third barely seen. And so, let's think about what that might mean. Does that suggest that conversation or discussion expands the perspective of each participant? Does that suggest that you have, say, a circle of influence, which you can then share with someone else, or a circular type perspective that you can use to inform the perspective of someone else? Last bit I'll mention, and I want you to write this even though it's not on the slide here. The specific liberal art that relates to the sun is arithmetic, adding. Well, how might it be the case that the art of addition would relate to sharing perspectives? It took me a long time to think about this. Well, in addition, one plus two means one quantity added to another quantity equals a what? A yet greater quantity, right? And so you add one thing to another, do you have one bigger thing. Well, is that the same with your perspective? If your perspective is the amount of information you have access to within your mind, and somebody speaks to you and shares new information with you, do you now have a larger perspective to perceive the world with? The answer seems to be what? Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And that seems to be one of the magical features of humans. Because do we have a manner, do we have several manners and media by which we can express information to each other? Can we speak? Can we write? Can we do art? Can we do drama? Can we make movies? Do we send messages in all sorts of ways to each other all the time? Yes, we're very interesting creatures, very symbolic in our thinking. All right, two speakers in this sphere that you need to know. And the first one, and also the last one, because he <laughs> speaks first in Cantus 10, 11, and then later in 13 again. The second guy, Bonaventure, will speak in 12. Well, his name was St. Thomas Aquinas. He lived a little bit before Dante's time, 1225 to 1274, right before Dante was, uh, right before uh, Dante. Uh, and he, he would have been the generation right before him, essentially. Um, Dante, as we know, does anybody recall when Dante was born? He was born just a little bit before Thomas Aquinas died. Yes? 1265. 1265. Good, 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 good. So, Thomas Aquinas, some facts about him. He was a monk. He was a theologian. He was a shedder of light. He wrote something like, and I might be wrong on this, but I have been told that he wrote his Summa Theologiae almost every day he would write on it. And I think he wrote something close to 70,000 pages. And so I just want you to understand just how much output a human can have. 70,000 pages. How many pages have you written in your life? 100? 200? 1,000? All very good. 70,000 right here. Very, very prolific individual. Wanted to share the light within, you might say. Well, he's described as having epitomized the wisdom of the church, which is represented by the second highest class of angel called the cherubim. In fact, a cherub or a cherubim, they're modeled off of Cupid. So if you ever see those little tiny angels with either harps or arrows with little uh, feathery dove wings, those are cherubs. And they are supposed to represent the wisdom of the church, which is interesting because they're represented as what? As babies, as children. Very interesting. Which, of course, is uh, related to a biblical quote which, uh, from Paul, which is, you must become childlike again, which, must, which means 
that they are perpetually filled with wonder at all the information expressed by reality, like a child is. And so that if you wish to be wise, you must see the world like a child and what at it? Wonder at it all. Exactly. And so, something interesting here. Something against our expectation happens. St. Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican friar. Now, the Dominicans were known for being like lawyers. They would occupy positions within the universities, particularly the University of Paris. That's where Thomas Aquinas was. And they would have huge arguments against other theologians who were heretics. And they would actually accuse them of heresy, which is sort of funny because uh, St. Bonaventure, who we'll soon see, did accuse uh, St. Thomas of heresy. And if I recall correctly, which I think I do, he did get Thomas's work put on the index of banned books for some amount of time, not too long ago. I think it was something like 30 years. I'll have to look up a couple of these facts so I can actually sh share something of substance. But in any case, Thomas Aquinas is a Dominican. Who would you expect him to speak about if he were going to talk about a, an order of friars? Obviously, St. Dominique. But that's not who he talks about. He talks about an opposing order, the Franciscans. And you might think, okay, so he's like a lawyer. He likes to talk smack. This is not his order. What's he going to say about it? Probably terrible things. Or why that order is not as good as his order. And yet, no. Incorrect. That's not what he says. He gives an encomium. He says good things about the Franciscans. He shows that he understands them, their founder, their message, and how they've fallen away from their path. Which is very, very interesting. I'll just say one other thing. St. Bonaventure, who was a Franciscan, will talk about St. Dominique and the premonitions his mother had when he was in her belly and how the Dominicans, like the Franciscans, like the Catholic Church, like Florence, have fallen from their path, which indicates that each one of these individuals has imbibed the other's what? What's the big word for today? Perspective, that's right. And here's the even bigger concept to grasp. If each of these men now shares the same perspective, are they different versions of the same type of person embodying the same goal just from a different angle? Are they like rays of light from the same source hitting the outside, the perimeter, of a bubble at different angles. Are they both the same and different in that respect? And in fact, what is it that makes them closer to the same? How they look when they live, or the fact that they share the same what? Perspective. It's almost as if shared information and perspective is what brings humans farthest from each other or closest to each other? Closest, yes, yes, it's very interesting. You might say, uh, do you think that's true, Mr. Schmidt? And I would say, why do you think I teach you all the same books? Why do you all think you say the same pledge at the beginning of the day? Why do you think that educators agree on the stories that you should learn? Is it so that you all can share a perspective as a people? Of course. Of course that's the idea. Very good. Very good. All right. And so, he speaks about St. Francis. He and I hope you're not confused by this. He makes the claim that St. Francis had a very beautiful wife. That beautiful wife, who's thinking cleverly? Who remembers who the wife of Francis was? Yes? Oh, 
Poverty. Poverty is, of course, a woman or an idea? An idea. A very terrible idea, but a very real idea as well. And so Francis must have been a monk who based his order of monks on what principle? That they should all be what? That they should be poor. And we might say, why would they want to be poor? And you say, Mr. Schmidt, Mr. Schmidt, we know this. We know the old argument that Dante makes about how the church and the state must be separate unless the church must have no worldly wealth so that they can, say, inform the perspectives of people around them. It's as if they have a richness of story of something even more valuable than earthly wealth. And so apparently St. Francis took this very seriously, so seriously that he supposedly even had very, very uncomfortable habits. Habits are the uh, cloaks that... Uh, that um, monks wear, supposedly they're itchy. I just can't even imagine like, wearing terrible heavy wool all the time, something like that. It's like, oh, gosh. He didn't have the nice anything. But like the Florentines, the Franciscans have fallen short of their founder's ideals. They now find themselves dressing very nicely and holding wealth. We see now that Dante is making a point not simply about the church, not simply about the state, not simply about Florence, not simply about Catholics, not even simply about monastic orders. He's making an argument about systems and entropy. When people stop pursuing the ideal of the founder of their organization, what, by definition, happens to the organization? It starts to what? Crumble. Because in order for an organization to exist, who must embody the ideals of that organization? Who must live up to the standards of that organization, the people within it. And so if the people within it stop living up to those standards, where do those standards go? They disappear from the world. They disappear, of course. If there are no great people around you, where is greatness? Nowhere, maybe in a mountain off in the distance. All right, good. And just something interesting I wanted to note. Thomas Aquinas is a very famous person, in fact, Many people to this day consider him the greatest philosopher ever to have existed. I, of course, disagree. I say Plato or Kant. Many Catholics still believe in much of what St. Thomas Aquinas said. He is to philosophy what Dante is to poetry. And he wrote the Summa Theologiae, which if you ever take any philosophy class or the history of philosophy, you will read sections from. He is a very, very, very famous person in the history of thinking. That said, does he talk about any of his own work? No. He glorifies the life of another, which I think is supposed to share that the most important thing about him is not him, but what he's learned from others, or something around that line. I'm still learning to have to think that through a little. But he seems very charitable in how he thinks. He does not brag about himself, but shares what he thinks is relevant about someone else. Actually, I do understand that. Who does that remind you of? The sort, who is the sort of person, the sort of person you see every day, who will talk about the greatness and the standards of others, but very rarely about themselves? In fact, they exist as lenses through which light is supposed to shine. Who can you think of? Teachers, of course. That is the idea behind this. It is teachers, because do we talk about our own glory? Do we brag about ourselves? Or are we bragging about everything else that we're teaching about? About molecules, or Alexander Hamilton, or how math equations are actually interesting, even though you know they're not. Is that what we talk about, or are we just like, yeah, yesterday I was eating lasagna, that was a good time. 
I mean, I know I say that sort of thing every now and then. But that's not me being a teacher. That's me palling you around with you. So very interesting. All right, Bonaventure. Canto 12. He was a Franciscan monk, which means he took a vow of poverty. In fact, we, have, uh, we do have a teacher here who uh, is married to a Franciscan oblate. And in fact, uh, I think, what was it? No, uh, Dante was not a Franciscan. He was, he was either a Franciscan or a Dominican. These are three facts I'm going to have to look up, whether he's a Franciscan or a Dominican. I think he was a Dominican, but I, I could be mistaken. I couldn't be mistaken on that. In any case, this man took a vow of poverty, and we do have a teacher here who I don't think has taken that vow, but is, uh, is herself Franciscan. And so is her husband, which is very interesting. The Franciscans embody the highest virtue or the highest theological virtue of love. And they are represented by the highest order of angels in heaven called the seraphim. In fact, the seraphim very famously have six wings, two that cover, I believe, their eyes, two that cover their mouth, uh, or no, two that cover their eyes, two that cover their loins, two that cover their feet. And so it's as if they are it is as if they are more abstract entities than actually organic entities or living entities because they don't have the usual principles of locomotion, reproduction, and of sight that you might expect of an animal. Very interesting to, to think about what that might mean. We'll talk about that in seminar. In any case, now that we have seen the theme of the sun. We understand what's happening. St. Bonaventure as a Franciscan, is he going to talk about St. Francis? No, obviously not. St. Thomas Aquinas already did that. Who is he going to talk about? Well, Aquinas was a Dominican, but he talked about Francis. So Bonaventure as a Franciscan is probably going to talk about who? St. Dominique, of course, the Dominicans. And apparently this St. Dominique was so holy that he caused his mother to have promontory dreams or premonitions in her dreams. That means uh, previews of the future. And this man took up arms against the erring world. So as I said, uh, how does one attack heresy? One attacks, well, heresies or her heretical thoughts are thoughts. And so how do you attack what you consider to be weed-like or gangrenous thoughts? Well, you purge them with the fire of your own thinking. Uh, what sort of thinking is like a purgatorial fire? Well, that would be true thinking or honest thinking in the perspective of Dante. And to use one's uh, tongue as a sword or as a fire, as it were, to cut away the nonsense. And that seems to be what the idea of the Dominicans was. And they were very good at what they did. I can get some information on just how many heresies they exploited and how many heretics they had burned at the stake. Um, it was quite a few. That said... Just like we've seen with the Catholic faith, just like we've seen with Rome and now Florence, just like we've seen with the Franciscans, we then hear lines 112 to 120, what we have been expecting to hear, that even these people have gone crooked. That no ideal will keep people from going crooked. It is their own will, their own choices, their own holding themselves up to a higher standard which maintains these institutions. There is no such thing as an institution without what's? The people within them. The people within them. There is no such thing as a government or a church or an order without people to be a part of these entities. In fact, 
You might say that the people are the organs of these entities, or the cells, which is literally how people talk about terrorists. They say that they have cells, as if they are organs within a smaller body, or a larger body. Excuse me. Hmm. Very good. All right. We get two interesting quotes here, and I just want to ask you a question about this, because I think this is very important, especially important to you who have to hear so many words and so many stories every day. Perhaps a criticism you may have laid at the feet of an adult that you know, a parent, a teacher, a coach, a counselor, will be, you talk a big game, or you talk the talk, but do you walk the walk? And so we have two very interesting quotes here. 12, 127, we have Bonaventure introduce himself as, I am the life of St. Bonaventure. That's a very odd way to introduce oneself. I would not introduce myself as the life of Mr. Schmidt. I would say I am the living Mr. Schmidt. If I say I am the life of Bonaventure, it's almost like what are you learning from? Bonaventure, Bonaventure's words or the example of his life and how he lived? And that makes me think, is part of the lesson of the sun that you should pay that your greatest teacher is not your teacher is using words but paying attention to the actions of the people around you that you learn the most from people by seeing what they do rather than simply what they say and there's just another little piece of evidence here in 1332 to 33 I was paying close attention to this, we see the marvelous life of the poor man of God, that's Francis, broke the silence of those concordant powers. That's said by Thomas Aquinas. Again, we're talking about the life of somebody. What is it you learn from the life of somebody? In fact, I've recently been reading, along with a couple friends, Plutarch's Lives of Eminent Greek and Roman Men. Why do I read these stories? What is it that I'm looking for? seems to be that what you look at when you see the life of a person is, hmm, perhaps I'll put it slightly differently. What do you think the difference in the quality of information is between somebody's words and their actions? Can somebody conceal from you what it is they actually are if you have what they do revealed in front of you? For example, if I catch one of you with your hand in the cookie jar, does it matter what you say to me? Or have I caught you red-handed stealing something from me? And then, regardless of what you say to me, do I learn more from what you do or from what you say? Now, certainly what you say can inform for me. You might say, I'm starving, Mr. Smith, or you told me I could do that earlier, and certainly words help. But I think what part of this sphere is trying to teach us is that what you learn best from are the actions of others, how they live, their lives, the example that they set for you. And I do think that that's true. I do think that that's true. And so that's the question I asked here. Do we learn from the life of Bonaventure and Francis because a story using language about a person is supposed to be representative of who they were and how one might mimic them, imitate them? Is the suggestion that the life rather than the words of a thinker, are more valuable. Because who wants to listen to someone who's just made of words? Words should describe real things. That's the whole point of it. All right. 
I'm going to get into the big arguments on the sun later. We're going to do this. We're either going to do this tomorrow or Thursday, probably Thursday, because these arguments are tough and you've already done a lot today.